Were y'all gearing up for this Memorial Day weekend? Tomorrow is Memorial Day, and it, it is, I guess, the unofficial start of summer and the International Hot Dog Day or whatever. <laughs> but y'all, there's a deeper significance in Memorial Day. You know, it's that we set it aside as a solemn day of remembrance for the men and women who died in the service of our country. That is a, that's a powerful thing. You know, I was thinking about that, and of course it's in the news and the build-up to it, and everybody's offering up their remembrances. And um, I got, a couple of years ago, into the podcast of a retired Navy SEAL named Jocko Willink, and uh, he's a pretty cool guy. I, I've learned some stuff from him. But one of the things he does is he, he talks a lot about his friends, his comrades, who died at war. And one of the things that, that I've learned in observing him from a distance, reading his books and listening to his podcast, and something I can't really know from personal experience, is that losing a brother at arms is a powerful thing. For the rest of your life, you're aware that they died for you. And so there's a certain significance to every day that's lived thereafter, that my brother died for me, I'm going to live out my life for him. That's what I think Memorial Day is really about. Not just remembering that some people died somewhere, but that moms and dads and brothers and sisters and comrades are marking another year without a person who matters to them. And I'll just be honest with you, I don't know what it is about me, but I never really thought about it that deep this week. And the reason I did was not just because I saw stuff on social media. But it was because I was trying to wrap my mind around the passage that's in front of us today. And remembering's a big deal. Whether it's a comrade who fell in battle, a son or daughter who gave their all for the country, or whether we're thinking about other stuff, like significant life events and the way God was present with us in a struggle. You know, every day beyond that day, you think back to God's faithfulness in that time. Do you know what I'm talking about? You've been there, you've seen God's faithfulness in a struggle, and for the rest of your life, you look back on that and remember, not just call into mind the events or the smells or the emotions you felt, but there's something deeper to it. There's something deeper to remembering that men and women died in service of our country. Yeah, we're thinking about them, recognizing their sacrifice, but we're honoring them for it. And I think we're hoping to draw some kind of encouragement from their example. What can we learn about love or loyalty or sacrifice from them? And it's with that in mind that we're going to be looking at Titus 3, 1 through 8, because when we start to think and remember God's kindness to us in Christ, it changes everything. It's not just the same old, same old routine reminder I have a reminder that pops up on my phone every day. I'm just now thinking about this. And it's actually here from yesterday. It says, be present and clean up. <laughs> every day at 3 o'clock. Because I want to remind myself that when I get to my house, I need to be present. I need to help clean up. <laughs> but now I've got to say this. This reminder pops up on my phone every day, and I ignore it. I just swipe it away. And we're not talking about that kind of reminder. We're talking about the deep remembering, not just calling to mind, but actually moving us to action. Because the, the call that we're going to see in Titus 3, 1 through 8 is really, 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 really tough. 
It's a challenging call to good works to people who are unlovable and oftentimes seem unworthy of our kindness. But when we remember God's kindness to us, we'll be motivated for good works that you didn't even know were possible. So will you uh, look with me here at Titus chapter 3, verse 1. This is what God's word says. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis which, of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Amen. Listen, over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through chapter 2. And next week, we're actually going to conclude our series through the book of Titus. So you'll definitely want to be here for that as we wrap this series up. But chapter 2 was mainly focused over and over and over again on drawing out the implications of the gospel in the lives of Christians. Whether we're talking old men or young men, old women or young women, Paul was at aim to try to help Titus get those folks on the island of Crete to understand that there's a different kind of life available for God's people. That they don't have to live ungodly lives controlled by worldly desires, but they can increasingly live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We saw that over and over and over. I think for five weeks we were in chapter 2. And I hope you saw that the kind of life God's talking about is not just a life of the mind, but it actually plays out in the everyday relationships of our lives. Right? God's called you to live differently with your family, with your coworkers, with the people in your church. But then Paul turns the page into chapter 3, and he's not so much thinking about the kind of life God's people are called to live on the individual or personal level. But now he broadens his focus to see what kind of life God's people are supposed to live in the world, out there, where the hellions and heathens are running about causing chaos. Well, how are we supposed to live among these people? They're losing their heads, Paul. What about us? And I, I, if I had have been in Paul's shoes, not writing under the inspiration of Scripture, of the Holy Spirit, Man, I would have given some guidelines. If it were up to Brad Mills, I know what I would do, and I'm going to tell you in a few minutes what I'd do. But Paul says something entirely different than my plans. He says you need to be about good works in the world. He actually bookends the whole, the whole section. 
So they need to be ready for every good deed. And then at the end, in verse 8, he said they need to be careful to do good deeds. He wants God's people out there in the world doing good. Y'all good with that? Well, okay, I want you to see then the particular focus of these good deeds. Because this is where I struggle. He identifies two major focuses of these good deeds. The first is that they need to live in subjection and obedience to the rulers and authorities around them. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. Like America today, the island of Crete has a rich political history. Uh, The Cretans had descended from an ancient and advanced civilization called the Minoans. And some people think even the ancient tales of the lost city of Atlantis were legends about Minoan civilization. You can go on Wikipedia today or go on History Channel and watch some specials on the Minoans. Absolutely fascinating people. In the late Bronze Age, the Minoans ruled the Mediterranean. But, of course, all good things come to an end. And Minoan civilization collapsed for some unknown reason. And after that collapse, the island of Crete became a hideout for bandits, pirates, and other lawless people. The ancient Greek historian Polybius describes the island of Crete in this way. He says, The Cretans, by their ingrained avarice, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murders, and civil wars. I mean, these Cretans are a crazy bunch, all right? They are up to no good politically. You want to talk about uh, conflict on the political stage? They knew all about it. That's their background. That's the context. But then about 100 years before Jesus, Rome shows up and takes over. And this once proud people, driven by their avarice to all sorts of seditions and civil wars, now find themselves firmly under the grip of the Romans. Perhaps you can imagine how these proud people might have felt under their Roman overlords. But it was in this environment that God's people were supposed to be different. Not resting back on their ancient heritage, not involved in the fray of current political sedition, but living in subjection and obedience to the rulers and authorities in their lives. You think about this call to obedience to government. Uh, It's pretty consistent throughout the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 13 that every person needs to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities oppose the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. In other words, I think the New Testament is pretty clear that as God's people try to live out a life of obedience to Him, they'll live in obedience to the government that's over them because God set that government up and therefore to rebel against their governments, to rebel against God. That's why Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, could say, honor the emperor, the same emperor that in a couple of generations would be throwing Christians to lions and burning them on stakes, at least provisionally deserves their honor, subjection, and obedience. And of course you know what Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 20. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and render to God the things that are God's. And so while I think the New Testament obviously makes room for 
what we might call civil disobedience or a conscientious objection to a law or directive that would violate God's command. And you could read about that in the book of Acts, chapter 5, where John and Peter say, whether it's right for us to listen to you or to God, you be the judge. We're going to keep on speaking about the things that we've seen and heard. I think the overarching pattern of the New Testament is that Christians are called to live in subjection to government. And we'll get back to that in a second. Because Paul starts there, but he doesn't finish there. Right? He broadens his focus from just the particular governing authorities in a Christian's life to all men. And he does that in verse 3 when he says, uh, or in verse, at the end of verse 1 when he says, they need to be ready for every good deed. And then at the end he says, showing every consideration for all men. Listen, obedience and subjection to government is a specific application of the overarching attitude of the Christian in the world. Ready to do good to anyone and everyone as occasion may arise. Paul gives these four specific behaviors. He says they need to malign no one. Your Bible may say slandering no one. To malign or slander means to engage in disrespectful speech that demeans. He says they need to be peaceable or to avoid fighting. The Greek word is a, a word they use to describe military conflict and sporting contests. They need to avoid that kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat in the public square. They're to be gentle, which means they need to yield to others instead of insisting on their own way. And they need to show every consideration for all people, or your Bible may put it really simply, they need to be humble, which means not being overly impressed with yourself, but recognizing that other people are occasionally worthy of our time, and it's good sometimes to cut off work early and go home and help your wife out. That's a humble kind of thing to do. And Paul says that's the kind of behavior that should characterize God's people in the world. I think if he were writing today, he'd put it real simply. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> Common sense. Straightforward. Doesn't seem difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But if as you heard some of those things, you caught a little something in your soul, like, ooh, Oh, you know how difficult these commands can be to obey. I mean, I'm, I'm preparing this week, and I almost hear the objections that those ancient Cretans would throw out. Subject to these guys? Have you seen the people they vote into office? Do you, you're talking about them, those Romans, who come into our town and tell us we need to bow our knee to Caesar and burn some incense at his little altar? You want us to be in subjection to them? Those people... Who tell us we can't meet for worship. The people who want to celebrate five-year-olds rejecting God's design for their body. You know, you know we got some crazy people running the world. I got to be in subjection to them? And Paul says, uh, yeah. Here I am, and maybe you're like me. I don't want to be in subjection. I, I want to follow James and John's example when they went into the Samaritan village. And the people turned Jesus away, and they said, Lord, is it at this time that you'd like for us to call down the fire of heaven to burn them up? That's what I want to do. I want to, put, I want to put my prayers to work. I want to see God rise and his foes to be scattered. I want to see him break their teeth in their mouth. That's what I really want, honestly. But Paul says you are to submit and obey. You think about some of the people you run across. 
in the real world and then online, spouting all kind of crazy talk, running people down. Maligning is like the least of our worries. Everything is slanderous. Everything is vile. Pouring into our minds all the time through Facebook and TikTok and YouTube. It's like, man, this world is messed up. You're telling me i got to be kind to these people. I'd really just like to let them have back a little taste of their own medicine. Paul says, no, you guys got to be different in the world, ready for every good deed. Jesus says, when somebody smacks you in the face, you turn the other cheek also. When somebody asks for your outer cloak, you give them your tunic too. And they say to walk a mile, you walk too. That's what we're talking about. He says you're supposed to let your light shine among men so that they'll see your good deeds and they'll give praise to your Father who's in heaven. Listen, this is the calling of God's people in the world, to live differently and therefore to be ready for every good deed. And so I run aground on it. Lord, do you want me just to tell your people to submit to their government and to be kind to the schmucks who live down the street? And I think there's something else at play. Because we've got to dig deeper for motivation to good works. can't just be a law outside of us. We need something working from within that's going to compel us to be different. When the heat rises, how do we keep our cool? When they're throwing around their comments online, how do we refrain from adding our two cents? How do we be different in the world? And Paul says, first of all, well, you've got to remember who you were before Christ. Remember who you were before Christ. He says that in verse 3. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul says we find the motivation to do good to these crazy people out here because we were once just like them. Every last one of us in this room has been there and done that. He said they were foolish, which is the Bible's way of saying a person lacks spiritual intelligence. They don't see things as they really are, and so they cannot help but make foolish decisions. He says they're disobedient, which means they've rejected God's command and law for their life. They don't live according to His design, partly because they're deceived. Of course, we know they're deceived by false teachers. There are false teachers everywhere on the island of Crete, and there are false teachers everywhere today filling our neighbors' minds with nonsense. Books, TV, Internet. What is true anymore? Does anybody give attention to truth? They're deceived. But, of course, we know behind every false teacher is the father of lies, who's Satan. Peter says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. As a result, they don't know any better. They're foolish, disobedient, and deceived, and can't help but making the same destructive decisions that are bringing harm to themselves and the world around them over and over and over and over and over again. They can't discern spiritual truth because spiritual truth discerns spiritually, and they don't have the spirit, Paul says. They're bound not only by blinded minds, but by their own desires and lusts. They are slaves to their bodies, unable to break themselves free from a sinful nature that day after day, moment after moment, can't help but drive them to more and more and more sin. That's what Paul says these people are about. 
Because of that, they're driven by malice, which is pure evil or wickedness. And that wickedness contorts everything in their life. So that even if, when we were an unbeliever, we tried to do good, inevitably it turned back in on us. And we sought to use it to gain a foothold on the people around us. That wickedness gives life to envy and to hatred. Envy is not just, this was crazy to me because I never thought about it. I thought about envy as mainly wanting something. I want something. That's envy, right? But actually, envy is the ill will directed at those who think they're better than you. It's not just about wanting stuff. It's hating people because they've got it and you don't. That sound familiar? And this is a comprehensive view of a person apart from Christ. And every last one of us have been there. By nature, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the spirit of the power of the air, the one who's now at work among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, following the passions of our flesh. That is us. We've been there. We know what he's talking about. And so I wonder, do you think this is too negative of a view? Do you think this is painting things in a negative light? Man, I know these people. I see it and I hurt for them to know the decisions they make are made because they are deceived, bound by their sinful desires, and unable to break free. We've got to remember, we've been there. We know what they're going through. According to Paul, the people these Christians are called to perform these good deeds to are not good people. They're not upright. They don't make good decisions. They don't offer us anything in return. But that shouldn't surprise us. The danger is forgetting that we used to be there. To seeing what's going on in the world and thinking, hey, you know, it's on its way to hell in a handbasket and thank God we're in the church. You know, man, isn't it great to not have to be out there wandering around? We know where we're going, praise God. But that's the dangerous place where we often end up, to think that, hey, we were wild once, but not quite like that. I never would have done that in my day. Even at my worst, I wouldn't have done what they're doing. And you allow that attitude to take root in your soul, to create in yourself this division between us and them that's not rooted in, in Christ and in sin, but rooted in, in something inside of us. And we're on our way to being the Pharisee that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 18 in his parable when he's, he pulls up in, uh, pull it up with me, Luke 18, verse 9. He's sitting there with his disciples, giving them some parables on prayer. And he thinks about the people he's seen. People like Samaritan women who'd had a bunch of husbands before and were living with a man who wasn't their husband, who has to gather water in the heat of the day because she knows if she goes and all the other women are there, they're going to talk bad about her. You know, a woman who's deceived and disobedient and foolish. But he also thought about the religious folks, the Pharisees, who were everything the Samaritan woman was not. And he saw a danger for them and a danger for his disciples. And so he warned them. He said, he told them this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this here tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. As I think the danger that's always present for the people of God is that we take root on a pharisaical mindset. Thank you, God, that we're not like them. Listen, church, a person who takes that attitude to heart will never be about good works to people who don't deserve it. They'll think they're totally justified and sticking up their nose and crossing on the other side of the street because those people are beneath them and unworthy. The kind of kind-hearted loving, good works that Paul's talking about here in Titus 3 really does rest in us believing, not just saying it, but believing that we were there once too. And while our unbelieving friends may live sinful lives, that doesn't give us any excuse to treat them unkindly. Who are we? Who are we to treat them that way? Because when you start to remember where you were, you start to remember what God did. And I love, Paul does this all the time. He says something about us, and then he says, but God. And he says this in chapter 3. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. God saved us. We were there, man. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived. We were wow. But God, because he's rich in mercy, saved us. We want to be about good works. We've got to remember what God has done in our lives. And Paul gives this beautiful explanation of the gospel. He's already done it in chapter 2, but he gets so overwhelmed, he comes back at it again in chapter 3, and he blows it open, trying to expose in every one of their sinful hearts a pharisaical attitude that had already taken root in their young Christian lives. And he says, God saved us not because of any good works we had done, not because we'd done anything righteously, it's not like God saw in us something that distinguished us from mankind. Like while all of them are disobedient and deceived, there's some righteous people, and I'd love to save them. Now it wasn't anything about them. It wasn't anything about us. God did it out of an overflow of his mercy and compassion and his loving kindness for man. I love the way the NASB puts it because they draw it out for us really clear. So when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind Appeared. That word love for mankind is literally the Greek word philanthropy. Philanthropy. There's lots of philanthropists out there willing to throw their money around to do good in the world. But when God thought of us, when he thought of the love that he had for mankind, he went beyond giving us some kind of simple gift. He gave his own son. He sent his own son Jesus to live a sinless life and to die on the cross for us. That's the kind of love God has for us. Love where we were but too much love to leave us where we were. And so he goes into the effect of the gospel in us, not because of anything we'd done, to the effect that he imparted to us new life in regeneration. 
He says, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is a big church word for a simple idea. It says that if mankind is by nature dead in their trespasses and sins, their biggest need is some kind of new life. If death brings forth death and life brings forth life, I need life. Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And this regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life whereby he imparts the resurrection life of Jesus to them. So that from the day they trust in Christ forever and ever, they live the life of Jesus. That is the regeneration Paul's talking about. Because of that, it doesn't matter what you were. You were dead. But now you've been raised up with Christ and you've been seated with him in the heavenly places. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. This is who Christians are now. Not dead, not disobedient, not deceived, but they are made new and alive in Christ. And more than that, they're being renewed by the Holy Spirit, day by day, becoming more than they were. Paul says in Romans 12 that we ought not to be conformed to the world, but that we need to be renewed in our minds. This is what he's talking about. That more and more and more, the life that we used to live, characterized by sin, is replaced by a different kind of life. The life of Jesus lived out in a broken world, among sinful people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. That's what he's talking about. So you want to live a life of good works? You've got to remember what God has done in making you new. You're different than you used to be. You don't have to get pulled down and dragged into what's going on out there. You are new in Christ. And then he tells us probably the best news of all, something that Paul said very, at the very beginning of Titus when he described his mission. He says he wanted everybody to have hope of eternal life. And right here in chapter 3, he comes back to it again. He says that by the Spirit, we have been made heirs of the hope of eternal life. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And here's the deal. If a person or if a church got serious about living a life of good works in the world, living kindly to people who are going to spit in your face, getting slapped and turning the cheek and finding that they don't mind slapping you twice, that they don't feel any guilt in forcing you to walk two miles. They actually love to see it happen. You, you start to ask yourself, well, if I live this way, won't my coworkers take advantage of me? Won't my family walk all over me? Like, won't I become a doormat for everybody and everything? And if we really submit to our government, Lord, what's going to happen? And Paul says, what do you have to lose? You've been made an heir according to eternal life. You know that your treasure is stored up in heaven. You're not living for this world anyway. Give yourself to good works. God has taken care of everything. You were dead. You were deceived. You were disobedient. You were foolish. But now you're totally different in Christ. And you have an eternal home with him. You have nothing left to lose. And so having remembered who you were, and remembering what God does. You're totally set free to think about these good works differently. I mean, if God was willing to send his only son to die for people who were sinners, who were his enemies, how can we exact a pound of flesh out of the people in our lives? Who are we to give them back what they give to us? No, we, we, we fall into this trap of mercy for me, Justice for thee, 
You know, we want God to deal kindly with us, and we want him to take our enemies' heads off right now. Call down fire from heaven. Break their teeth in their mouth. Dash their heads against the rocks. You know, that's how we feel. That's what we want. But that's not what God wants for us. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and if you've got a highlighter or an underliner, like a pen or a pencil or some lipstick or something, this is one to highlight or underline. Ephesians 4, 32. Ephesians 4.32. We're going to read into chapter 5. So, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Paul concludes this section of Titus 3 with the phrase, this is a trustworthy statement. And throughout the pastoral epistles, which is what we call 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, he says this several times. This is a trustworthy statement. This is a trustworthy statement. What I assume it means in Titus 3 is that when a person starts to remember God's kindness to them, they find a deep, deep motivation to kindness to others to good works, to people who don't deserve it. And that's what Paul makes explicit in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. That just as God in Christ forgave us, Christians, of all the people on the face of the earth, ought to be forgiving to others. They ought not to hold grudge, be get bitter about stuff, be unforgiving, holding things over people's heads. And if if God saw us, and, and maybe you've would define it differently. Paul says foolish, disobedient, deceived. Maybe you could put some specifics on there. But if God saw you when you were like that and gave his own son for you, couldn't you find it in your heart to forgive others? If Jesus loved you enough to willingly sacrifice his own life, what would it look like for you to love the people around you? That's what Paul's getting at in Titus chapter 3. He's telling Titus to remind God's people to live a life of good works towards the unbelievers around them because they remember where they were and they remember what God has done for them in Christ. And so church, I just would ask you this morning, how would you characterize your attitude to the unbelievers in your life? Not just government, but the specific people you know. The unbelieving people in your life who make things difficult for you. How do you treat your co-workers, family members? How do our kids hear us talking about politicians, presidents? What does our social media feed look like? Are we letting our light shine? Are we adding another voice to the chaos of the world around us? And Paul would have us to stay above the fray, to stay out of it, to bring peace where there's conflict. To bring love where there's hate. That's who we're supposed to be about. Do you remember that old saying, but for the grace of God, there go I, is true. That were it not for God's grace given to you before you ever knew right from wrong, working in your heart to impart to you a new kind of life, that you'd be right there with them. You'd be the loudest voice at the front of the riot, smashing windows, burning it all down. That'd be you. 
but God. And what do you think happens if a church starts to take that seriously? If a church really were to take to heart that old idea of no perfect people allowed? And what if they strove for an authentic, transparent openness before each other to acknowledge that, hey, yeah, we are the church. We've been redeemed and set free by Christ, but, man, we are creatures of grace. Nothing to build our confidence on within us, but we're built only on Jesus. And I think their reputation would start to get out. Would, would we be known, I wonder, today in Luling, Texas? Would Central Baptist Church be known as a place full of gracious and compassionate people to the lost and broken? Or not? People see us as self-righteous, perfectly put together. I don't know. And then what happens when that church starts to take that attitude to heart? They start to find opportunities to care for people in broken, messed up situations. Young moms, not married, but clearly pregnant. How do we treat them? Drug addicts, people who smell differently than we do, not nicely perfumed, but pungent. How do we treat them? What are we about? No, I, I think if this were true of us, as I think God wants it to be, Everybody would know far and wide. doesn't matter where you are in your life or where you've been. Those people down there at Central Baptist Church love you. Hey, I know that's true of you, and I know God wants to make it that way even more. So will you recommit with me this morning, Memorial Day weekend, to remembering day by day who you were before Christ saved you? To remember what God has done for you, not because of anything in you, but just out of the overflow of his mercy and compassion, or would you let it shape the kind of life you live in the world? Well, if so, will you pray with me?